Morning, church. It's a privilege to open God's Word with you this morning, get to do that. If you're a guest with us, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. I had the privilege of meeting some guests in first service that had been attending online for some time and just started attending in person. So we praise God. He's building his church even through the difficulties of the last year. This morning, we're wrapping up a long sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. The sermon series started this, uh, October 27th, 2019. So 19 months later, we're wrapping it up. 81 sermons in total on this gospel. And I want to say thank you for your patience uh, with me. I remember starting the series in 2019. Someone said, well, how long will it be? How long will it take us to get through the whole of the gospel? And I said, I don't know. I'm not sure. And so I appreciate your patience. I do think that... and. Um, I do think that the people of God, the evangelical church, um, can grow in its discipline of digging into a single book week in, week out. I guess that's obvious because I just took us through 81 weeks in the Gospel of Luke. But thank you for your patience. And, uh, and this summer, um, we will make our way through the book of Colossians. So if you want to read ahead, you can prepare for this summer sermon. Turn with me to Luke chapter 20. We'll wrap it up this morning. Over the last 19 months in the Gospel of Luke, we've, um, we've crossed two Christmases and two Easter's, and in order to do so, we've jumped around in the Gospel a little bit. And so we're wrapping up in Luke chapter 20 this morning. From chapters 9 through 19 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus is on a journey. He's walking towards Jerusalem. He's literally a dead man walking. He's walking to his death. In chapter 19, when he enters the city, if you're familiar with the, the life of Christ, you know he enters to great fanfare in Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. We celebrate it annually. They're singing his praise. They're receiving him as king. Maybe you're familiar with that, that passage. He parades in on, a, on the back of a donkey. They lay their cloaks before him in the road. He, he's being received as king. And it's thought that he'll make his way into the city, he'll become king, he'll vanquish the Roman authorities, reestablish Israel's sovereignty as a nation. But that's not at all what happens. Once inside the city walls, it wasn't the Romans at whom Jesus took aim. Not at all. Instead, it was the Jewish religious leaders he went directly to the temple and began driving out all those who were selling animals and changing money in the temple courts, famously referred to as the temple cleansing, cleansing the temple of its ethical bankruptcy, people profiteering off of worship in the sacrificial system. An economy had grown up around the Jewish sacrificial system, and it was important uh, that animals without blemish be offered. So there, there needed to be purchasing of animals for sure. And the temple only took one type of coinage. But people flocked from all over the region with different types of coins. And so money changing had to take place. The problem was people were gouging. They were lining their pockets off of the worship that needed to take place in the temple, the sacrificial system. The forgiveness that people needed, some were growing wealthy through that. Let me ask us this morning, if Jesus were to cleanse the church today, and he is, he always does, 
he's to use New Testament language, ironing out the spots and wrinkles in his bride. That's how he refers to the, the church, right? The bride of Christ in the New Testament. He's the groom and he's always purifying his bride. In that, God is still today cleansing his people. What about our lives as worshipers would he take aim at? After cleansing the temple of those vendors, Jesus went back each day to the temple courts to teach. And although religious leaders wanted him dead, they couldn't find a way to do it. It took them all week. Well, it took them many months to figure out how to do it. And by the end of the week, he'll lose his life. The temple courts were large, a 33-acre parcel of land with the temple in the middle, thousands, picture in your mind, of worshipers and those needing to make sacrifice for sin during the Passover would flock to the Temple Mount. It would have been rarely, fairly easy for Jesus to draw a crowd as people were packed into the Temple Courts. That is the setting for our passage today. It's Passover week. Jesus is going to lose his life at the end of the week. The Temple Mount is packed with Jews coming to make sacrifices for Passover and Jesus is teaching. And he's going to be asked by the religious leaders, by what authority do you do these things? Let's turn our attention to Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 8. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests, so those are the folks in charge of the sacrificial system there on the temple mount, the teachers of law, those are the ones... Uh, charged with keeping, probably the scribes, charged with keeping the scrolls of God's word, together with the elders, the Sanhedrin, those charged with spiritual oversight of the community. So they all come together and they came up to him, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I'm going to ask you a question. I'll ask you a question. Tell me John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and they said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe John then? But if we say it's of human origin, all the people will stone us because they were persuaded John was in fact a prophet, that John's ministry was in fact from heaven. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What's Jesus up to here? Is he intentionally dodging the earnest questions of religious seekers? Why doesn't he just answer them straightforwardly? My authority comes from heaven. Then he could be done with it, you'd think, right? Instead, he answers their question with a question. He has this counter question. And make no mistake, his counter question is meant to expose their hypocrisy. It's meant to trap them. The short of it is that John's baptism had the authority of heaven. It was John, in fact, who testified to Jesus' authority and baptized Jesus. But Jesus knows that they will not admit as much about John the Baptist, and neither will they admit as much about him. So Jesus doesn't answer them directly because he knows that they're not actually earnest in their question asking, their seeking. 
They aren't really interested in finding out the origin of Jesus's authority. What they're interested in doing, and we know this from the previous chapter, chapter 19, they're interested in backing him into a corner where he commits what is blasphemy. That is, he, he claims to be God. And this is actually the reason that they, um, by which they crucify him later in the week. So they're not interested in all in what he has to say or the origin of his authority. They're interested in framing him. They, these religious leaders, chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, right? this, is, this is the leadership of, of Israel. They appear here to be power-hungry, manipulators of public opinion, who ultimately answer Jesus' counter-question in a way that only serves their retaining power. We don't know where John's baptism is from. Although the truth was, they hated John the Baptist. They persecuted John the Baptist. They won't say that they think his baptism was of human origin because then that would alienate the people that they're lording it over, their power base. So Jesus doesn't answer them directly because he, doesn't know, he knows that they're not earnest seekers. But he also doesn't answer them directly because he has already made it abundantly clear. It's already been made abundantly clear the nature of his authority, the origin of his authority. For example, on the road to Jerusalem, he passed through the city of Jericho. It's a well-known story. There's a blind man there who cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Well, Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, oh, you misunderstand. I'm not actually the son of David. No. He goes on to heal the man, which is basically an affirmation of this title, son of David. Now, why does this matter? Well, all of Israel knew that Jesus, or that the Messiah would be a direct descendant of King David, and that the Messiah would sit on King David's throne for eternity. Today, Christ is enthroned. He's the head over the church. He's the head over God's people. He's enthroned for eternity, a direct descendant of King David. In fact, Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy trace his lineage for this reason as being the son of David. I'll give you another example. Jesus' baptism. Heaven itself is open. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, descends upon him. There's a voice from the heavens. The God the Father says, this is my son and whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. A testimony of who Jesus is. You've got this Trinitarian moment. God the Spirit descending, God the Father testifying, and God the Son being baptized by John the Baptist. Even John recognized Jesus' authority, testified to it. John said in Luke 3, I baptize with water, one is, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose handles, uh, sandals I'm not wor worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. If you've been baptized this morning and you're trusting in Christ as Savior, you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. John goes on to say, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he'll burn it up, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John here alludes to the, the judgment, the authority to bring judgment upon humanity by Christ. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll burn up the chaff, separating it from the wheat. He'll burn it up with unquenchable fire. And of course, these testimonies 
don't even touch on the fact that he went on to be crucified in accordance with Old Testament prophecy, to be raised in accordance with Old Testament prophecy, to ascend to the heavens. All these demonstrations of his authority. So over and over throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus, as well as others, testify to his heavenly authority. In fact, the, the reason we've spent the last 19 months in Luke's gospel to quote Luke is, and this was the first text upon which I preached some 19 months ago, so that we would know the certainty of the things that we've been taught with regard to Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. Yet the religious leaders, by and large, rejected his testimony. Folks, I find in myself a pull to act much like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. By that, I mean I find in myself a desire to, in some cases, reject his authority over my life, and in many cases, to resist it. To assert my power, my influence, my social standing, to protect what is mine. I know I'm not unique. I know that we face these temptations as a community daily. And I know that Jesus continues to cleanse us he continues to grow us. The, the theological word is to sanctify us, to purify his bride. When our political worldview is out of line with the Bible, Jesus will cleanse us. The Holy Spirit will teach us. When our relationships with others, maybe our relationships in our family, or our relationships in the church, when they, or our relationships at work, when our relationships don't honor him, he will cleanse us. He has that authority. He'll call us to submit to him. That's the issue of authority, right? Why should we listen to you? Why should we obey you? That's what the religious leaders are asking. Because he's the son of God. I'm going to submit to the one who was raised from the grave, right? That seems commonsensical. The one who gave his life for me, the one who lived sinlessly, the one who taught brilliantly, the one who went to the cross for me, then was raised three days later. I think of our entertainment choices, the things by which we use to amuse ourselves. Jesus calls us to submit. He calls us into obedience. He calls us to recognize his authority over our lives and to honor him. Remember the context of this morning's passage. Jesus is t teaching in the temple courts, but from the religious leader's perspective, he's an unknown Galilean from a town of Nazareth, a long way from the Temple Mount. He's a Galilean with no formal rabbinic training. I can hear Americans in the 21st century saying, who is this rabbi, this teacher from the first century to tell me how to use my time or my money or my body? Luke's really clear here. Luke wants us to know. John the Baptist wants us to know. Jesus himself wants us to know that he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It's interesting that the religious leaders didn't deny the things that Jesus was doing. Right? The healings that he performed were, it was obvious he had authority. The brilliance of his teachings, it was obvious as he had authority. You read through the Gospels and several times they say he taught as one with authority. Not as the religious leaders taught. Brilliant ethical teaching. 
So they didn't question his demonstration of authority, raising people from the dead. They questioned the origin of his authority. At one point, they even accused him because the signs that he performed were so clear, so obvious that he had authority. They accused him, well, the origin of your authority, you do this by the power of the devil. But again, it was just a twist or a turn in their attempt to resist his, to his authority, to not submit to him, to not have to obey him. I see that in my own life. I see that, well, I'll talk to God. You, you don't understand here or there or, and I'll reason with God about why my disobedience makes more sense than my obedience. So when the religious leaders say, what thing, uh, by what authority do you do these things? There were some things in particular that had just happened that they're upset with. They're, they're upset that he's ruined their economy. <laughs> right? They made money off the sale of animals and the changing of money. So he's, he's undermined a source of income for them. But it's not just that. They're also upset that he was receiving praise. If you're familiar with the Palm Sunday events, as he made his way into Jerusalem, Luke 19, the chapter just prior to this, records that people, his disciples, were singing his praise. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for the miracles they had seen, the demonstrations of his authority. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they said. Peace in heaven, glory on the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. Jesus responded, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. They didn't like it that he had ruined the temple economy, overturning these vendors, chasing them out. They also didn't like it that he claimed all of creation would worship him. All of creation. We owe Christ, according to Jesus, we owe him our praise, our lives. In short, they didn't like Jesus requiring their obedience and submission. Even today, the American church, and especially its pastoral leadership, should be very, very careful in this regard. I can't help but wonder how God might be cleansing the American church. Russell Moore, the, the recently resigned ethicist for the Southern Baptist Convention, when your ethicist resigns, uh, you should have concerns as a denomination. He said this in his, um, over the last week, he said, the temptation that evangelical Christianity always has is to be as authoritative and as prophetic as the people with money allow them. In short, the authority of the ministry of God's word can be compromised by greed. And that's certainly the case in the wealthiest church that's ever existed, the American church. Ironically, a non-believer who's been attending our church recently shared with me over coffee, they wondered how it all worked, he said. How does it all work? He's asking about the church. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, the church pays your salary, right? I said, yes. Well, how do you know you're not being influenced by those who pay your salary to simply say what they want you to hear, what they want to hear? That's a good conversation, right? I love it. I quickly admitted I am not above that temptation. And then I tried to under, uh, explain 
how the church is supposed to work. It doesn't always work this way, but it's supposed to work this way. I went on to explain that according to scripture, that every believer generally, everybody within earshot who's following Christ, and every elder specifically, has the responsibility of testing what is taught. Of discerning if what is taught, whether from this pulpit or in a class, Sunday school class, or a small group, or kids ministry, or youth ministry, it is the responsibility of the listener, the believer, to vet what's being taught to make sure that it aligns with God's word. It's the, particularly, it's the responsibility of the elders of the church to make sure that the lifestyles of the leaders match the biblical testimony. God established the church as a family in which no one person leads alone, I tried to explain. Instead, a team of shepherds called elders are called to oversee discipline in the church, doctrine in the church, and the direction of the church. It's not just church leaders who should take warning from today's passage. It's all of us. Sadly, the trials of the last year have revealed that for many Christians, we quickly and easily fall out of obedience to the Lord. And I want to give one example. One example. That being of church attendance. Nationally, uh, there is a discussion, and I do mean nationally, going on about church attendance within the evangelical community. The question being asked is basically, when will God's people return to church? And I praise God, we estimate that about 60% of those who call Glow and Bible Church home are back with in-person worship. But what's fascinating is there is a, a recognition that the attendance habits of evangelicals has, has changed. It used to be that evangelicals were attending about two and a half times a month. There's four Sundays in a month, by the way. By the way. And that evangelicals were attending about two and a half times a month. It is now close to one and a half times a month. I raise this and, and really, at Glow Bible Church, I'm thankful we're doing well. I, I saw a, a, a church leader over the weekend um, in Wheaton, and uh, he shared with me that only 30% of his congregation has returned to in-person worship. So generally, I'm very thankful. At the same time, I, I would be remiss as a shepherd not to say that attendance is vital for bringing glory to God and experiencing as much joy as possible in life. You know, the church was God's idea. It wasn't my idea. As Dan Moss said, it's a team sport. No one's meant to run this alone, run the race alone. We're given to each other as a gift. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, the writer of Hebrews says, spur one another on to love and good deeds. The metaphor there being used is spurs like cowboys would wear and use on horses not meant to draw blood or bruise the animal, it's certainly meant to get the animal's attention. Spur one another on, this is what I hope to do this morning. To loving good deeds, I hope to get our attention. The very next verse, verse 25, chapter 10, he says, and do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Don't give up meeting together. And then he says, so that you can be prepared for the day, and it's a capital D, the day of judgment. There is a preparation 
for meeting with our creator that this gathering helps with. It helps with cleansing our lives, purifying our lives of those elements of our lives that dishonor God and undermine our joy. I'll close with this. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now there's a supreme irony to this is the last sermon I preach before I disappear for the summer. I got it. But Lord willing, I'll be in a different church every, every Sunday this summer. That's my goal. So if you haven't heard, I'll be away on sabbatical by God's grace. I'll be uh, visiting other churches and learning what I can from other church leadership about ministry, which is a tremendous blessing. So although I'll not be here, I pray that we spur one another on. We don't give up meeting together so that we're prepared for the day of judgment. If you want to read those, past, that, those verses later, it's Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll obey my commands. And I know we love him. I know we're very thankful for the grace that we've received. Let's increasingly let our lives, let's, as Dan said, let's have Olympic passion for following Jesus because of his goodness towards us. Amen? Let me pray for us, then we'll close in song. Would you stand with me? Father, we publicly acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ. And we know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is in fact Lord. Father, those areas of our lives which need your cleansing, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be good to us and address them. Have mercy on us as your people. And let us know the joy and the freedom, the easy yoke and the light burden of obedience. For his glory and our good, we pray these things. Amen.